year and a half, two years or so. And um, one of the things that I have appreciated about Jeff is that um, for every one of us, there is a, we have a daily struggle of connecting what can seem to be the abstract concepts of the gospel with the moments in which we live. That it's a challenge for us to think through, okay, in this moment, how does the gospel bear light in this situation and actually make a difference in this moment right now? And one of the things that I've appreciated Jeff as I've gotten to know him over the last several years, the last year and a half, is that Jeff is someone who lives consciously in the moment with an awareness of the gospel. Consciously, consciously thinking through, at this point in time, how does the gospel inform what I'm doing here at this moment? What I don't mean by that is that Jeff's not perfect. Jeff's not the, uh, the perfect Christian. He's not the one that we're all to emulate. But what he is is he's a person for whom the ideas of grace, the ideas of whom a relationship with his Savior is not an abstract concept. It's not something that he talks about, but it's something that he lives. And I trust that you'll, you'll experience that and be blessed by that here this morning. Jeff is the director of mentoring for Surge, and what that means is that after serving as a missionary himself in Switzerland, he, um, what he focuses on is making sure and seeking to ensure that the, that the core truths of the gospel are being lived out in the mission fields where Surge works and also being lived out in the, mission, in the lives of the missionaries and in the work of the missionaries that, that they're doing. And so what we're going to do now is um, watch a brief intro video about Surge, and then Jeff will come up and open up God's Word here this morning. Surge is about people from very different corners of the world coming together because Christ has invited them to be together and unified in his body. Surge is a sewing term that brings up a picture of joining two rough seams together to make a smooth cloth. A frayed end has been bound up or where two pieces of cloth have been bound together. And that's a picture of what God does with us. He brings the rough to the beauty of who he is. God is a missionary God. Jesus is a missionary Christ. The Holy Spirit's a missionary spirit. Our mission is to see the kingdom of God extended all over the world. Today we have approximately 250 missionaries serving around the world. God's given us a unique position in a message for a time such as this. And so we do that by church planting, evangelism, discipleship, prayer. We do development work like wells and clinics and schools. We do businesses now. We do all kinds of things to put hands and feet to the message of grace so that we never offer grace alone uh, as an idea. The grace always comes with something tangible, uh, a touch of grace in a person's life. There are lots of different kinds of work that we do, but it really is about being alongside our friends as we come and experience the gospel together. I cannot go out without understanding what Christ has done in me and continues to do in me. That's what empowers me to go out and be with my neighbor. God can take broken, ragged, fractured things and people and circumstances and make them well. It's bringing God's grace and the world's brokenness together and healing, renewing, redeeming it. That's grace at the fray.
It's uh, nice to be with you all here. Um, Walt, those are really nice words you said about me. I don't know how much of that's true, but hey, we'll figure that out as we go along here. But uh, my name is Jeff McMullen, and I serve with Surge Ministries, and uh, we were formerly known as World Harvest Mission. You may have heard of us uh, before. Surge is a missionary agency, and we operate from a core set of beliefs, and this video, I feel like, articulated this fairly well, uh, that we need the gospel just as much as anyone else. So as we seek to make the gospel known to others, we desire for the same grace to renew our lives. We really are one beggar telling another beggar where we found bread. And that's what propels everything we do. And, we, and Surge does this in three ways as a mission, three areas. We do this through mission. We're in over 16 countries. We have over 250 missionaries um, serving in North Africa, East Africa, India, and Western Europe. We also do it through resources, like Walt mentioned, where we help to create materials that help people to live out the gospel in every area of their life. We do that through Sonship, the creation of Sonship, also Gospel-Centered Life, and also our Gospel Transformation series, and a whole slew of other books and resources as well. And we do it through mentoring, and that's what the area I work in that Walt was talking about. I lead a team of 11 mentors that mentor ministry leaders, not only through um, our, uh, from our missions agency, but also are part of the U.S. Uh, church, uh, other pastors and missionaries from other organizations around the world as well. Uh, there's a huge gap that exists between what I really know about what God, who God is, what the Bible tells me so. That's what I call my formal theology. And my functional theology, what I live in and out of day in and day out. It's the thing that's really basically my true theology. And in our mentoring ministry, we try to help to bridge that gap and bring it a little bit closer. We help pastors and missionaries apply the gospel to their own hearts. I'm a pastor, I'm a missionary, and it gets a little bit wonky sometimes when your full-time job is telling others about Jesus. You can often feel like a hypocrite. And, and we walk alongside ministry leaders to help them know Jesus' love and forgiveness, to help them we create a safe place to talk about their own struggles with sin and doubt and, and lead them to the foot of the cross. It's a real honor to be working in this department, and it's a real honor to be here. Um, more importantly than what I do, um, I'm married to uh, Jody. We've been married for 15 years. We have three children. Ewan is 11. Liesl is going to be nine next week, and Nolan is five. Um, I'm a PCA teaching elder. I was a missionary that served in Vienna, Austria. And I'm originally from Maryland. Um, I'm originally from Ellicott City, Maryland. So it's good to be back. I'm also licking my wounds over the Orioles losing. Um, so that's really tough. But um, again, it's a real honor to be here this morning and to preach God's word with you. Our passage this morning is going to come from, a fee, uh, from Philippians chapter 2. 
And if you could turn there with me to verses 14 to 18, just a little background on this text. Paul writes his letter to the church at Philippi in modern-day Greece while he's in prison. And Paul writes to thank this church. I mean, this is a missionary uh, update letter that Paul's writing here. I like how one study Bible puts that. And Paul thanks the church for their gift to him. And he updates them on the progress of his work. But really, the, the, the thrust of the book is to encourage this young church. This young church that is struggling, that is suffering from conflict within and persecution by living in the culture that they are in. And Paul does it not as an expert, but as a fellow sufferer, as one who understands and struggles with his own need for Jesus, with his own pain, his own heartache. And in the first chapter of this book, Paul presents himself as a model for, of what it looks like to follow Jesus from his own life. And in the first 11 verses of chapter 2, Paul explains how Christ is the ultimate example of humility, service, and love for us. When he became a servant and endured a shameful death on the cross so you and I might live. And immediately following um, or preceding our, our, our verses today in verses 12 to 13, Paul says that the gospel and our call to live out the gospel, it's messy. It's something that we need to work out with fear and trembling. God has has, uh, secured our salvation, but he calls us to partner in that work of living that out in the world, and it's really, really messy. And this morning, we're going to talk about what are some of the the specifics of living out our Christian faith. And we're going to see this here in chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. So would you read along with me? Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. You should pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it tells us about Jesus and how to live in this world. Father, you also know our hearts. You also know that we have a lot that uh, bounces around in our head and many of us are distracted. Many of us have questions, many of us feel guilty, many of us uh, just feel hopeless. Would you bring us rest? Would you help us to see Jesus today? Will we fall more in love with you and become better lovers of those around us? Would you use me, empowered by the Spirit, in my weakness and my frailty? Amen. So, how would people identify you? How would they label you? 
When I was a kid, I had ginormous teeth. I mean, teeth that hung down over my lip. I'm not joking. And not only were they too big for my head, they were also, I had a huge gap. I had like the Grand Canyon between my teeth, and you could stick almost an M&M between them. And needless to say, I was embarrassed by that. I was embarrassed because I was called Bucky the Beaver growing up. It's okay, you can laugh. I'm not going to, I've I've gone through enough counseling to handle that. Um, I will never forget um, that one time I was playing tag in my backyard, and I accidentally tripped, and I went face first to a tree. And what saved my face from getting completely destroyed were my teeth. And I'm not joking either. You go to Frederick, Maryland, where I lived before moving to Ellicott City, there's a tree with two little teeth marks in it. It was a saving grace for me, my teeth. But I was horrified by that. Do you imagine? That's one of those shaping experiences in our lives. And I didn't tell anybody about that for years, because why? I wanted to distance myself from being labeled Bucky the Beaver in any way possible. And I think we all have stories like that, don't we? We all have identities that we're trying to push away and out of our, our uh, lives. Maybe when you're a kid, you were called a certain way, just like you, and you've kind of sidestepped that and tried to navigate around that your entire life. Labels like being called nerd or zit-faced or loser. Or I think in our culture, we're increasingly, uh, this is becoming like a bad a label, just being called average. At the same time, we work really hard at creating an identity. And I could tell you lots of identities that I've tried to create for myself. But we want to be known in this world, don't we? And we found ways to navigate through that as well by working hard, and being, getting strokes for that. By resting in our intelligence, by our looks, by our social media presence. In our passage today, it's all about living out an identity. It's all about an identity that we're not supposed to distance ourselves from, and an identity we haven't created for ourselves, but that's been freely given to us in Jesus. And Paul is telling this church that one of the major ways that you can work out your salvation to follow Jesus in the world is to live out your identity as his lights in a crooked and perverse world. Regardless of what identity you're trying to create for yourself or have been trying to distance yourself from, God's calling each of us to work out our Christian faith by living out our identity as his lights in our broken world. So what does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things, but we're going to pull from this text three things. It's going to mean abstaining from complaining. About two, we're going to be about being a transforming presence in the world. And finally, partnership in the gospel. Doing this together. So do all things without grumbling or disputing. Paul is calling the Philippians to refrain from the one thing, the one thing that will quickly destroy their witness to the world and stunt their spiritual growth, complaining and arguing. The language that Paul uses here in verse 14 describes, to describe the Philippians, 
echoes back. It echoes back to the Exodus story. During the events of the Exodus, the Lord led the, the Israelites out of Egypt. Remember that story? And the Israelites begin grumbling and complaining. They grumble and complain to Moses and Aaron as God's representatives being led out into the wilderness, and they complain they didn't have enough water. They complain they had to eat cucumbers and leeks and onions. They complain they had to eat manna and they didn't have uh, meat. They were a nation of complainers. And we see here in uh, Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 to 3, I mean, how the Israelites complained. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Then we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly. The Israel would rather be back in slavery than struggling with hunger in the wilderness. They are looking back on their time in Egypt, almost like it was the good old days, but they had quickly forgotten that they were slaves. They were making bricks without straw. They were working in the fields, enslaved by a king who wanted to kill their Hebrew sons. Their grumbling and their complaining reveals their perceptions of their circumstance. They had forgotten what their story was and what it was like before God had rescued them. Like most kids her age, my daughter Liesel loves to draw. And this is a picture she recently drew of herself. And what I like about this picture is how you can see, you know, her features. She, cra- she captures her freckles very well, and her, her hair, and her great smile. But what is more, what is more subtle, and you can't tell from, watch, from looking at this picture, is how well this captures her personality. She is truly just a happy girl. And she is And that disposition comes out in this picture. I think Liesl accurately perceives who she is. And that comes out here. And you know what a grumbling and complaining attitude does? It's actually like a spiritual check engine light. It warns us. Unlike my daughter, who can actually perceive herself correctly... It shows her that her perceptions about her, it shows us that our perceptions about God and our lives are off. When I'm grumbling and complaining, I am complaining about the circumstances and relationships, and I'm not only processing problems. And, and don't get me wrong; I'm not saying that you don't talk about what you're frustrated about, please. But you know, there's that line that you kind of step over when you start to complain. And it's kind of slowly going downhill. And it's that underlying anger and demand that life should work a certain way. And in that moment, it's revealing what I most fundamentally believe about how God and life should work. The Israelites grumbling 
Oh, also, like our grumbling complaining is also directed in two, two ways. It's, it's directed horizontally at our relationships and at our circumstances, like, I can't believe she interacted with me that way. When is she going to realize that she talks too much? Or, circumstantially, I can't believe that person is driving so slow on the way to church. Don't they realize I need to get to church? But it's also directed vertically towards God. And the Israelites grumbling and complaining might have been directed to Moses and Aaron, but as God's representative, the Israelites were ultimately complaining to the Lord. The Israelites were blaming that the great I Am, who brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness, was the one who was going to kill them with hunger. And we're no different than the Israelites. Our complaining is driven by a set of beliefs about who we think God is and how we think life should work. And whether that situation is small, like somebody cutting us off on the road, or a lot larger, where we've maybe lost our job unjustly, it reveals the situations, our grumbling and complaining reveals what we most believe about our God. And it reveals often that we can act as spiritual orphans. A spiritual orphan asks a fundamental question. And that question is this. Do I believe that I have a Father in heaven that loves and will take care of me? Or will I have to try to take care of myself? When we act as spiritual orphans, we're asking, is God good to me right now, even in the situation that I'm facing? Can God be trusted? And I want you to take a moment and think about your own life. What or whom do you find yourself complaining about? Maybe it's a circumstance. Maybe it's somebody at work. Maybe at your school. And just take a moment and think about that. Who is that person? What is that situation that you're facing? And then the second question I have for you is, how does your complaining reveal a spiritual orphan mentality in your life? How does it believe that it's up to little orphan Jeffy to make my life work apart from Jesus? And as you think about that, I'd encourage you later today to go and talk to Jesus about that. Just confess your sin to him. Ask him to give you eyes to see all the riches that you have as his kids in the kingdom. Because he has lavished you with his grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and the Holy Spirit who's at work and wants to help change and transform you. It's a great activity to do on the Lord's Day. I encourage you to do that. But living out our faith not only means we need to abstain from being these complaining people, that's often so hard to do, right? It's just so easy to complain. But God also wants to use us as his transforming presence in the world. So, so what does it mean for you and I to be a transforming presence in the world? Well, let's look at verses uh, 15 here and 16. 
first part of 16. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life. In verse 15, Paul explains the presence that we're called to be by living as blameless and innocent children in a very broken and sin-marred world. Theologians tell us that the word translated blameless or pure in other translations means without mixture. These words were used as terms in metalworking, James Boyce points out, to talk about pure gold, pure copper, or any metal that did not have impurities. The Philippians were called to live in the world around them without this mixture. And Paul is saying that there is a marked difference between God's kids and the world. And I think we know that, right? Even though the Philippians are in the process of working out their salvation with fear and trembling, and they may not do it perfectly, but they are different. And God is transforming them more and more to be like him because the Spirit is at work in their hearts and lives, just like he's at work in our lives. And what Paul is doing is calling the Philippians to make their presence known by who they are in Christ as his lights. The Philippians are to engage the world with the forgiveness and mercy and grace of Jesus without losing their distinctiveness as his children. St. Clair Ferguson points out that the word translated lights here in verse 15 is also used in other uh, sources outside the New Testament at the time to mean uh, to bring on the meaning of navigational beacons or lights. And Ferguson says this, and I thought this was really helpful. Perhaps Paul is thinking not only of the bright and the beauty of the stars set against the dark sky, but the safety to which they point. Who the Philippians are in their everyday life to those around them is meant to be a reflection of and point to Jesus. And all of us here this morning, whether you're in school, you're in the workplace, or you stay at home, are interacting and engaging with the world all the time, aren't we? And we have to wrestle with, and maybe we're not even aware of it, but we are, what does it mean to be distinctly Christian in the world that we're around us? What does it mean for me to follow Jesus today at school or in the workplace? How do I be a beacon of hope to my friends at school without them thinking I'm a weird alien from another planet? How do I engage my coworker and the cubicle next to me in a way that is faithful to Jesus and at the same time doesn't seem judgmental and condemning of where they're at? And each of us here are being called to make Jesus known as we grab a hold of the word of life ourselves. It's messy. It's difficult. And I ran across a story that I feel like describes maintaining this distinctiveness and at the same time this way of engaging the world. And I want to share that with you. Dawn works as an ER nurse in, Chicago, in a Chicago area hospital. And she tells the story of one of her nights when she's working as a head nurse. 
And she's told to go set up uh, the, uh, the room for a patient who's going to be put in lockdown. And a lockdown is usually asked for someone who's in a psychotic state or is being combative. And when the lockdown patient arrives in the ER, he is strapped down and restrained to the cart. She explains that when this man arrives, everyone in the hall had to turn away into disgust because he smelled so bad. When she entered the lockdown room, she saw this man, who she calls N, in the story with his feet taped in plastic bags. And she explains how the smell was simply overpowering, coming from his mold-encrusted feet. And after the doctor examined this man, he ordered the nurse to give this man a complete shower and scrub down. And Dawn was assigned to this man because no one else wanted the job. And as Dawn waited to start a shower for N, she says this, As I waited with N, the numbness of my business was interrupted by an overwhelming sadness. I watched N, restless and mumbling incoherently to himself through his scruff of a beard and stash. His eyes were hidden behind his ratted, curly-length mane. This poor shell of a man had no one to love him. And I wondered about his past and what happened to bring him to this hopeless, empty place. No one in the ER that day really looked at him, and no one wanted to touch him. They wanted to ignore him and his broken life. But as much as I tried, I could not. I was drawn to him. The smirking security guard helped me walk him to the shower. And as we entered the shower room, I set up the shampoos and soaps and towels like it was a five-star hotel. And I felt in my heart that at least for 10 minutes, this forgotten man would be treated as a king. And I thought for those 10 minutes, he would see the love of Jesus. And what makes Dawn's story powerful is not that she's a nurse that took care of a homeless man. Do you get it? But how her love for Jesus overflows and to how she cares for this man. She was a bright light of Jesus to a broken man. Later in the story, Dawn tells, she is the one who meets Jesus when this homeless man begins to weep for gratitude for what she is doing. Being a transforming presence for Jesus in a world around us that can often seem hostile to us, can it? means that we're going to often do the exact same things that the world does, but the way we do them is uniquely different. We're motivation. We're motivated by a love for Jesus. We have the fingerprints of God on our heart and lives. And that's being fleshed out in the way that we engage one another. Tangibly, that means the gospel frees us to do our work with integrity. We can own our mistakes and not cut corners on our projects because that's what honors Jesus. It's seen in the way that we do relationships. Relationships aren't a means to our end, but we want to seek the best for the other person before us. It means it comes out being patient and selfless with a prickly and self-absorbed person. 
It means also not turning away or excusing the broken, shameful places of the communities we live in, but moving into the, to that mess with hope. I want you to think about your own life right now. We all have dark corners of the world in our families, in our friendships, in our workplaces, and in our communities and schools. If you were, oh, that's the wrong question. I don't want to do that one. I don't have it up there. Okay. I want you to figure out what are the dark corners of your world that God is calling for you to shine as his light? What are they? What are the relationships? What is the workplace or school? Where in the community? But we don't work out our salvation by only abstaining from grumbling and complaining or being this transforming presence in the world. We, do, we don't do this on our own. We're in partnership together for this to happen. And verses 16 to 18, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. In verse 16, we see that Paul is heavily invested in the Philippians' growth in the gospel. He is passionate that the Philippians are living out their faith and will consider his ministry to be futile if they don't finish the race well. On the surface, you know, I read this and I go, man, Paul's really arrogant, isn't he? He's really proud of what he does in his own strength. But what Paul is actually doing, he's boasting in what the Lord Jesus is accomplishing through his work. And what the gospel is doing in the Philippians' lives. Paul is looking at the believers in Philippi shining as his accomplishment. If they shine in this crooked generation, he'll boast when he stands before Christ that he did not labor in vain. He can say, I can be proud of how I lived my life. Look at those Philippians. They're shining. And in verse 17, we see the extent of Paul's sacrificial commitment to the Philippians' growth in Jesus. He refers to him being a wine offering poured out. And a wine offering would be performed after an animal was burned on the altar for sacrifice. And the wine offering would be poured on the sacrifice while it was still burning and would disappear in a puff of smoke. For Paul, he took great joy in the Philippians' growth in grace. Their faith was more important to him than his own life. He was willing for the Philippians to flourish in Christ at the cost of his life. Now, as I look back on my childhood, over the last couple of years, I've really started to realize how much my parents have done for me so that I might have a better life. My dad grew up in a pretty poor family, and he told me, it was t- he told me what a great sacrifice it was for him, for his, for his parents, to buy his first football cleats. And I see how my dad has made some huge sacrifices over the years for me. 
so I might have a nice life as a kid. And I know it cost my dad a lot. Working extra sometimes, loss of sleep, showing up at every stinking event that I ever did because he wanted me to flourish. He wanted me to grow at cost to him. And as followers of Jesus, we have the opportunity to lay down our lives to help the next generation flourish in Jesus. We're carrying on the work of those before us as his lights in the world. It's a generational work. Paul wanted the Philippians to see, to carry on his work, and you and I need to see ourselves as carrying on the work too, just as all those have carried on this work before us. And we have an opportunity, and I, love, I loved hearing all these slides and all that you guys are doing. You really do have an opportunity to pass on the gospel to the next generation, to the youth of this church, to your families, but to California, Maryland, to the surrounding areas, to Annapolis, to Baltimore, to Washington, and to the ends of the earth. And the beautiful thing, though, is we don't do it together, or do it on our own. We do it together. God has given us each other to grow to be like Jesus, to be his lights to our families, our neighbors, and the world. But we will only be motivated to live out our identity as his lights to do this with great joy and sacrifice it will demand of us when we're reminded how loved we are in Christ. To be this people in this passage sounds awesome, doesn't it? Yeah, we get all fired up. We're like, yeah, let's go out there and conquer the world for Jesus. But loving people is tough. We get hurt. People don't respond the way we want them to do, to respond to us. We get disappointed. We lose heart. They betray us. And following Jesus into the dark corners of our worlds will make us more aware of how far we are from being these lights. And that's why we cannot forget the larger context of this passage. It was Jesus who laid aside his reputation and humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death for us. People who are resistant and indifferent and blind and half-hearted. He gave up everything, his status, his life on the cross, so we might be his joy. He is our prize and our motivation to move into others' lives with humility and purpose and resolve because we are his precious treasure, that he was so motivated to be the humble servant and give up his life on the cross for us. So let me ask you one question. If you were to die today, what would you stand before Christ and boast about? How many hours you logged at work? How many likes you got on your Facebook picture? That's the stuff I live for 90% of the time, if I'm really honest with you. And what Paul is pulling out in this passage here, I think, is the larger term, the bigger goal of our lives. It's for us to know Jesus and to make him known to the world. Living out our identity as his broken lights in a world doesn't mean we have it all together, folks. 
We're just people who are constantly running back to Jesus and what he's done for us. And that's motivating us into the world. And in part that means we're simply learning what it means to keep from being complaining people, to be a, pre- to be a transforming presence in his world. And that we're people that we don't do it on our own, but we do it together in partnership, carrying on this generational work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would apply it to our lives. Jesus, we thank you for your death and your resurrection, and you've brought new life to us. For many of us, that becomes stale. I pray that you would spark our hearts, use your word today, and what we have heard to change and transform us, to make us fall more in love with you, and to move out to love each other. Amen.